We are in the ninth chapter, those that are online in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah, this ninth chapter is a book about prayer. It's one of the greatest prayers really in the Bible. And he says in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6, he says, You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts. That word host is sabah. It means that which goes forth. We usually say the Lord and his armies, the angels, the angelic beings that goes to warfare for the Lord. He's speaking of all of those things. They go to war for him. And for our behalf, he goes on to say, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heavens worship you. And it reminds me of Colossians chapter 2, where Paul is speaking about the universe. He says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. In it, when Jesus was on the cross. So Nehemiah 9 is one of the great chapters. It's, it's on prayer. And I have about six subpoints I want to make regarding to prayer. We think of the prayer Abraham gave over Sodom. We think of Daniel 9 prayer, Ezra 9's prayer, or even the little quick prayer that uh, Ezra gives. Nehemiah gives in the book of Ezra. And so uh, prayer, we can't do enough of it. Prayer changes things. If it doesn't change the circumstances, our circumstances, it changes. If we are seeking the Lord, it changes our heart. And that's, that's the best uh, we should look for out of prayer. Prayer can easily go into a routine, a routine to rut. Ruts usually go into prayerlessness, and you just stop praying. And Jesus has told us, let my house be a house of prayer, because prayer do changes things. And growing up in a prayerful church and just watching my mom and dad pray, hearing them pray, they would always start off with adoration, thanking the Lord for what he has done, and thanking the Lord of what he will do in the believer's life. And then they would always confess their sins to the Lord and start off with a clean plate. And how important that is, we should have a daily tab of our sins and confess those so that we can walk in holiness and purity of life. And that's what Nehemiah is going to show us here. Nehemiah you can say Ezra also has an unrelenting prayer life. That's why they did so much. I always say nothing gets done without prayer. So verse 1 says in chapter 9, it says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. I think the reason we don't fast and do that now and pray like that. Either we don't have a thirst or our prayers are not that important to us, or we don't want people to know we're that desperate for the Lord to answer us. 
But that's the way we should be, whether we have a sackcloth and ashes on us or whatever. We should be a desperate people for prayer because prayer changes things. It was roughly about three and a half weeks after the days that they were at the water gate that Nehemiah has set the podium or someone has set the podium up and Nehemiah team was up and they brought the book of the law of Moses and they began to read it. Remember, and the spirit of God hadn't said anything about the spirit of God descending on anyone or any group of people until they started seeking the Lord. We know the good hand of the Lord was on Ezra because he was a man of prayer and he sought the Lord. But all of a sudden, when they brought the book of the law of Moses in and started reading it, it wasn't until they began to read it, the Spirit of God descended on them. And it says in chapter 8, verse 10, Nehemiah reminds them, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so as the men gathered together the following day to hear further instructions, they found out there was much of the law that they weren't doing. Uh, it, was a, it was a time around the Feast of Booth, the Feast of Tabernacle, and their repentance as the law was being read, it was very quick. So that tells me they had a tender heart. They had a heart of wanting to obey the law. And so the Feast of Booth was on the 22nd day of the following month. The people assembled again to observe a fast day. Nehemiah 9.1, it was a national day of repentance. And I wish to God we had a national day of repentance in America. We, we need that to humble ourselves and seek the Lord and that he would raise up, begin to raise up again a godly nation. That would be nice. But verse 1 says, now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. They were not ashamed. Then those of, then those of Israelites' lineage separated themselves from all foreigners. And it was the word of God, I believe, that did that, that made them begin to separate themselves. Leviticus 20:26 20, had told them, and you shall be holy to me, the Lord speaking. He says, I am the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Verse 2 says, and they stood and confessed their sins. The Lord has to be upon us. The Lord has to be dealing with a man or a woman for them to admit they were wrong they're in sin, and they want to do something about it. So you know the Lord is there. And the iniquities of their fathers, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord, their God. The word of the Lord will do what it does. If our hearts are sincere, if our hearts are sensitive to the Lord, when we read the word, when someone is proclaiming the word, if the heart is right, there will be a change. And so this tells you that they were hungry for a new change. They were in sincerity about that. So after he read, they confessed their sins and they worship followed also. For So another fourth of the day. They read the law, they read the word, and then confession and worship began. And notice the Israelites were urged to be joyful. 
first and then sorrowful second. That seemed like it's backwards. Seemed like you should be sorrowful first. You did something wrong, and then now you're repenting and joy comes. But the Lord says, no, I want you joyful first to continue to seek me, to continue to look, to look towards me, and then the repentance will come. And that's a contrast because the gall of sin to face the facts of the past that we are sinners, but we need to change our ways as we follow the Lord. And, and being in the word and being in prayer can't help but to change a believer more and more into the image of God. So this was a turning point. They had tasted that the Lord was good, and now they're seeking him. It says, so in accordance of the law, the Jews, they all separated themselves from all the foreigners that was in the midst of them that were there. And as I read that, especially with the climate of the day, we know that this separation, it was not because of God being prejudiced. He's not prejudiced, nor is he a racist. It was because God wants his people to be separate, to live set apart lives from sinful people so that we can draw a sinful world to Jesus Christ. God not wanting his people to be contaminated by sin. That's why it's so important to be in church on Sundays and come to church on Wednesday, or at least you're reading the word because we get contaminated. It's easy to get the world, the filth of the world on us. And we need to be washed by the water of the word, as Ephesians says. Deuteronomy chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, because this is what Yahweh told them as they were getting ready to go into the promised land. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess... And has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. Only God can do that. We're always victors with Jesus Christ. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, God speaking here, and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their, their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord. We're set apart. Your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, he is God the faithful God who keeps covenant, hesed, 
in mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments, and he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. Now, I got a New Testament verse for you. And you're probably asking, why am I reading this? But you'll find out in a minute. Romans 1, 18 through 25. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That's toward God. And unrighteousness of men, that's toward men how we behave, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. So all of these tribe of people, they knew innately that there was a God, but they were bowing down to these detestable idols. He says, of God, because God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So all of those tribes, all of those nations that they're going to destroy, they knew better. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful. Crops come in, they eat. Crops go out, crops come in. They never said, who is this God who is so good to us, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's why I think we have all these so-called genders now, when there's only two. And we become empty in our thoughts, turning away from the facts of things, what God has pronounced. We turn away from those. And, we, and, and this is what they call in verse 23, the devolution of man. Instead of going up, man goes down. And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Notice how they go from animals to creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is Yahweh, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now look back on verse 3. It says, and they stood up in their place, they've got the law of Moses out, and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. A three-hour worship service with Scripture. And there was, and they were probably reading the book of Genesis, uh, the creation, because he will talk about that later. Verse 4 says, Then Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shabaniah, Bani, Sharabiah, Bani, and Shanina stood on the stairs of the Levites, and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabana, Sherebiah, Hodijah, Shabaniah, and Pethathiah said, this prayer, this prayer itself consists of seven distinct, really subtitles. We're going to look at them as we go. Nine through six is a praise about God, our creator. 
we should always acknowledge God. I mean, he's the creator. He's the one that saved us. And that's what they do in verse 6. They say, you alone are Yahweh. You alone are our creator. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. It reminds me of Colossians when he says, Paul says, and he holds everything together by the word of his power. It says in Isaiah, one day he's going to unroll it like a scroll, the heavens and the earth. But as of now, God holds this universe together. They go on to say, the host of heaven worship you. And once again, there perhaps they have read Genesis, the creation period of chapter one. Number two, a record of God's power and grace right up to the, that day, the 24th day of the month of Tishri. That was 446 B.C. And it's against the backdrop of the Israelites' repeated failure during their wilderness wandering. Nehemiah 7 through 15, that's what they're talking about here. It says, you are the Lord. You are Yahweh, God who chose Abram. Remember, what was Abram's, what does Abram's name mean? I don't know. I'm asking. Who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. I know Abraham exalted, uh, father of, of a nation. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words for you are righteous. Of course he would. He's not a man that he should lie. You saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land, for you knew they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself. That's what every believer should do, should be doing. That's why we're still on the earth as believers. We should be making a name for Jesus Christ on how we live, how we treat people. When we mistreat people, we should go back and repent. That's what the Lord wants us to do. Making a name for Jesus is not about our name. It's not about Calvary Restore's name. It's about having the character and the love of Jesus Christ. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws good statues and command. Notice he said good statues, not to hurt us, not to keep us locked in and think we don't have a significant freedom, but they're good statues and commandments. Jesus says, my commandments are not burdensome. They're for you to keep us in the way. You made known to them your holy Sabbath 
and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in to possess the land which you have sworn to give them. What else could he do? I think that's what God says to his children sometimes. What else can I do for you? You're eating, you have shelter, you're clothed. What else can I do for you? For you to fall in love with me, which we should already be in love with him for him dying on the cross for our sins and resurrecting from the dead. So they praised God because of the way that he had treated their forefathers in the past. And they glorified God concerning Abraham, how he had preserved Abraham in the land of Canaan. They praised God for the way he brought their nation out of the land of Egypt, led them with miracles through the wilderness, and protected and preserved them. That's what they're praising him for. Just think of the despite all of the things the Lord had did for them. Provision for food, for clothing, for protection. They still refuse to listen to Yahweh. Once again, I'm reminded, Jesus says, I stretched out my arms all day to a rebellious nation. I feel like he says that to me sometimes. Hey, I've given you everything you want. And you're still rebellious at times. You're so ungrateful at times. I'm reminded, I think I said this last time I was up here, the Wednesday I was up here, David. He says, David, if you wanted more, all you had to do was ask me. Now, that's something. My dad, and he loved me, and he never told me, if you wanted more, all you had to do was ask me. He said, boy, I can't give you any more. Enjoy what you got. But I serve a father who says, before you sin, before you mess up, if you wanted more, all you had to do was ask. And that's what, exactly what Jesus said to the nation of Israel. All day long, I stretched out my hand for you, and you would not come. We see here that God is very generous. He's a patient God, not because the nation of Israel were deserving. None of us are. But God had made an oath with Abram in Genesis 12, 7. He said, then the Lord, as he was coming out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, worshiping idols, had never thought about the one true God, a rich man who was thinking. And God came to him and he showed up. And he says, then the Lord, then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He comes back to him several more times, but this time it's Genesis uh, 26, verses 4 and 5. He says, he tells him again because he really, he tells him in chapter 15, then he comes back and tells him, that's nine years, 10 years later. And then he comes back here in chapter 26, about 10 more years later. If you haven't noticed by now, that's the way our God operates. He does nothing quickly, especially when it comes to punishment 
He's long-suffering. But he says, and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed, and Galatians tells us, and that seed is singular, speaking of Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's why we are blessed. Because Abram obeyed my voice. That's how much God looks to obedience from his people. And kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Verse 16. It says, but they and our fathers acted proudly. You know, he could have said, but they and our fathers hardened their necks. But the reason they hardened their necks, it was a reason to that. They were proud. And it says they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. The third thing, verses 17 through 20, It's a testimony to God's forgiveness. He's a gracious God. He's a compassionate God. And he wants the children of Israel to know this. He says in verse 17, latter part of 17, you are a God ready to forgive. I like that word ready. It means he's always, if you've ever seen track meets, how they're getting their starting blocks. That's what I, I see Jesus as or God the Father as. He's in the starting blocks, ready. That, that, that also is a bad picture because it says he knows we're going to mess up. <laughs> so he's ready <laughs> when we do mess up. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them anybody else would have, even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations, yet in your manifold, I'm reminded in First Peter when it, I think it's First Peter, it's First or Second Peter, when he talks about the the manifold grace of God, the various colors, grace works on your behalf, it might work in this way. Grace might even work when God has to discipline us in a different color of grace, but it's still grace, and and he's working those things out for our good. So Peter says he comes in his grace in many manifold, various colors. Same things he's saying here. Yet in your manifold mercies, your different flavors, your different colors of mercies. You did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouths and gave them water for their thirst. Throughout this period of their wilderness wandering, They did not lack for anything. They grumbled and complained. God still fed them. God still gave them water. That's the God we serve. Verse 21, he says, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness 
They lack nothing. And I like when I pray, I like to think back of all the victories the Lord has won on my behalf, knowing if he won those victories, he's going to win those that's coming down the pipe. And that's what they're doing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. God met their every need. Verse 22, moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations, just sprinkling them with grace and mercies, and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. He's, he's doing exactly what he said he would do. And brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. Verse 24, so the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug. That's the graciousness of God. Vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. It would be nice to go in a neighborhood, $500,000 home, and just go in and occupy it and say, thank you, Lord. Don't have to work for it. He's just giving it to us. That's, that's what these cats are dealing with here. He says, so they ate and were filled and grew fat. And that's always a danger right there when you grow fat. You tend to begin to start to forget about the Lord and where all of those blessings came from and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Point number four, this is an open confession of sin, 26 through 31. This prayer records, and it, it records the prayer of the time of the judges and the monarchy, the characteristics that, that, that led them to, the sin on their part of grace and on, on God's part was grace. It says, nevertheless, after all, if he did all of these things for the nation of Israel, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Notice what they're doing. They're confessing sins. They're first, not only theirs, they're first, uh, they're confessing their father's sin. That's how much they want the presence of the Lord to stay with them. That's how much they want to walk in obedience. Lord, you've been good. All of your promises has come to pass. Even to a disobedient people, that's how good you are. And they're lavishing on him praises for his goodness and his mercy and his grace. Nevertheless, they rebelled. They were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourselves. And they worked great provocations. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their enemies. And there's, you see, the manifold grace of God right there. Even though it's, it's because of their disobedience, he, he gives them a heavy hand but even in that disobedience and that heavy hand, God is working many color, various graces. Because if he didn't care, he'd let them run. Who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven. That's all he wanted them to do is turn. 
And according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies. This is the time of the judges that's happening here. So that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that you might bring them back. He does that to bring them back to your law, to his law. Yet they acted, notice that word again, proudly, and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years, you had patience with them. We serve a merciful God and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, sent prophets to them. Yet they would not listen. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. Even when he was doing all of these things to the nation of Israel to get them to turn, God knew in his foreknowledge that these people that are praying to him right now would see the actions of his mercy and his grace, and that would call them, even though they weren't even born at the time, but that his, his, the testimony of his goodness and of his fame and of his mercy is going to drive these people to serve God. Judges, the sin cycle. Remember the sin cycle? They, they would repent, judgment would come and all that, and then they would get back and know the Lord again, and then they would forget, and then they would sin again, and they would go into servitude, cry out to the Lord, and he would bring salvation. The fifth point is arresting, they're resting in God's faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness at that. Verse 32, now therefore, that's what the therefore is there, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy. Do not let all the troubles seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people. Number six is a complaint that the people are in distress. It says slaves here. Some translation says servants, but either one, what this, this, this part of Scripture is wanting us to understand is that Ezra and Nehemiah were really work, working for Persia, but yet and still God had control. So they would say, are oh, you for the Persians anyway? You don't care about us. But everything they did showed that they love Yahweh and their love, Yahweh love spread to the people of Israel. So it was just another excuse why they would not bow the knee and listen to Ezra. He says, however, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. 
for they have not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things that you gave them or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Verse 36, here we are, servants today. And the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, here we are, servants in it, all because of disobedience all because of being rebellious to God. God has a path that he wants all his children to walk in. There might be various different paths. We all have that poema of our own walk that we should walk in. And every time we walk in the path that the Lord has for us, you better believe me, there's blessings. There's benefit in that walk because we're walking in obedience. But every time we go off that path, there's going to be trouble because there's, that's where we, we don't belong. And he's trying to call us back to the true and natural path. Number seven is a solemn oath. And they can recommit their way. It reminds me of Mark and Chris' wedding vows, the ceremony again. God does that all throughout the Old Testament. He brings them back up. Remember this. Remember your vow to me. Remember we're in this relationship together, and you said you would do things, and I said I would do things, and that's what we should do. And he says, and it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress every time you're walking in a, in a path you shouldn't walk in. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, our leaders, our Levites, our priests, and we seal it. So they come to this. They're writing. We'll, we'll get that next week. They're writing the law out. They're writing the agreement out. They're going to sign their names to it. They're going to uh, confess their sins. They've repented of their sins, and they're waiting for the blessings of the Lord. They're doing it in sincerity. They truly want to walk with Yahweh. They truly want to please him right now. We know things will go sideways again, but at this moment, they're tired of, they're tired of rituals. They're tired of religion. They want a personal relationship with Yahweh. That's why, and Yahweh knew their hearts anyway. That's why he came down all of a sudden and touched their hearts. You know, we can say we want revival. We want the Lord to move. We want him to do this. And we, we could be saying the right things, and God doesn't move. And the reason God doesn't move, Victor, is because of the heart. You can't get away from the heart. But when that heart is changed and that heart is pliable and God can begin to mold it, it's like Jeremiah and the potter's clay. And he'll continue to try and mold it and get it to bend so he can work with it. And then the spirit will come because he will not pour his spirit upon anyone who does not truly want it. You can say you want it, but if you don't truly mean it, he knows. But this group of men and women, boys and girls, I don't know if it's 40,000, 50,000 there at the water gate. But their hearts were pure and their hearts were true and they were hungry for a touch of Yahweh. 
And that never changes. When a heart is hungry, when a heart is thirsty for the Lord, all he's looking for, their heart is right. They want me to come. He wants me to come. She wants me to come. Remember, he's set and he's on ready and he comes. And this is what the people are, they're experiencing right now. No, no faux pas, no fakeness, no any of that. Just real repentance and a cry out to the Lord. They've been in the word and the word has spoken to these people. And that's why they confess their sins. God, knowing they confess, he pours his spirit out upon them and there will be a change. That's what prayer does. Malachi 3.6, a well-known verse, it says this, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. The same way he worked in Nehemiah and Ezra's day is the same way he works in our day. He's looking for someone to open up their hearts, constantly open up their hearts and say, Lord, nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And you know, the flesh would tell you, man, I'm going to get trampled. I'm going to get ran over. I'm going to get mistreated if I act like this, if I just say, Lord, it doesn't matter. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And God is saying, trust me, I'm going to take care of you. If you have an open heart for me, if you obey my words, I will show myself faithful. And that's why they pulled up all of that history in the book of the law, and they read it. And they said, hey, this is a faithful God. He's faithful. We can be vulnerable in the presence of Yahweh. Because he's going to look out for those that has an open heart for him. He's a faithful God. And that's why things are going to begin to change. It's going to be a turnaround only for a minute, only for a minute. But right now, they're seeking the Lord. The Lord has showed up. Notice they were seeking the Lord by reading the word, and as they were doing that with hearts ablaze, with hearts truly surrendered, no matter what he said to them, they had a mindset and a heart set to do it. And that's why he showed up. I can use these people. These people, they're going to represent me. And that's when the Lord comes and he fills us. You know, I've never seen a revival, heard of them, so-called revivals. But I was reading a Whitfield. He'd go into churches and schools, and revival would come. And he said it always started with prayer. One person would pray sincerely. They'd get up and pray. And as they were praying, he said, I knew the Lord was on them because of the things they were praying. You wouldn't think they would pray, Lord, I've did this, I've done that, Lord. 
save me, change me. And that heart, God would come and then it would catch another because they would see the goodness and the kindness of God. You guys, we can be vulnerable with the Lord. He knows us anyway. We can't hide anything from him. And that's why he wants us to share our heart with him so he can change us. So he can change us. We need to pray more. And we need to go to the Lord with adoration. Remind him. Let him know that he is famous. That he is the only true God. Brag on him. Boast on him. And then confess our sins to him. And then begin to tell him our supplication and our needs and our wants. I tell you what, I usually hit the floor and I'm saying, Lord, I need this, I need that. I appreciate if you gave me this. And I never say, God, you are a great God. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for providing for someone like me. Nothing but dust. You are faithful. And then I began to look and say, you are faithful to my dad. You are faithful to granddaddy, Papa Tim, Papa Luke, all of them. They, they believed in you. And I've never seen one in the family begging bread. And they were known for their holiness to the Lord. That's what the Lord can do. And that's why we need to seek him in our prayer. We should be men and women, boys and girls, a prayer and, and, of course, knowing the word. And seek him, and I'll, I'll close with this, seek him with sincere hearts. Because, once again, if you learn nothing else, if your outward confession is nothing, if the heart is not bent, if the heart is not seeking him, the heart will always make a convert of the mind. The heart will always do that. The heart must be right. I can say I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do it right, Lord. I, I, I think I can. I think I can. And then it all goes wrong. And the reason it all goes wrong is because it has not reached my heart yet. And if it ever gets in my heart, then that's where the change comes. That's what happened to the, these people at the Watergate. And that's why the Lord came and his presence came. And he, and he could work a change in their lives. So as long as we're not letting it get to our hearts, we labor in vain. And I don't like laboring in vain. It doesn't pay well. Let's pray. Father, Jesus, you said, let my house be a house of prayer. How many churches, that's not true. I pray that Calvary Restore is a house of prayer. If it has not been, I pray that we start seeking the Lord, not for what he can do for us, but what we can do for him. How I can humble myself. How I can look to the needs of others more than myself how I can serve with abandonment and not worry about what others are doing. Lord, that's what I need. That's what puts a smile on your face. 
And that's what I want to do, Lord. So I pray for every member at Calvary Restore that we would spend time in your word and in prayer with a pliable heart because we, we do so in vain if we do not have a pliable heart. I ask for a pliable heart so that you can work a change in our lives, Lord, so that you can, the world can see us as a peculiar people. That boy, that girl, they're different. It's something about them. They don't let the, the things of the world burden them down. All they're thinking about pleasing is an audience of one, and that's God. And I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.